0: Interstate Batteries is a proud supporter of the sportsman's nation and these guys have been around a very long time. And why do you stick around a long time? It's because you treat your customers the right way and you provide your customers with a product that works. So if you want to find out more information about Interstate Batteries, their history, their company culture, their devotion to the customer, what you need to do is visit interstatebatteries.com or or stop in to one of their thousands of retail locations all over the United States and talk with a battery specialist today. Interstate batteries, outrageously dependable.
1: Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. (laughs) Hey guys, I want to thank you for the support listening to Land and Lakes Podcast, but we also want to thank one of our partners for making it all possible. Uh, Pure Air Natives out of Missouri, great, great company providing quality seed, quality native blends for not only habitat, but CRP contracts to native gardens uh, or native landscaping. Um, from grasses to sedges to beautiful wildflowers. Uh, specifically great for this week's podcast we're going to talk about grazing and specifically grazing natives so if you're considering changing up some things at your cattle operation maybe look into pure air natives to help develop a blend for some warm season pastures or some native cool season pastures whatever it is check them out at pureairnatives.com hey guys welcome back Uh, you got adam here and we're going to be joined once again by Kyle Hedges and uh, talk about something we've never talked about specifically on this podcast, or at least I don't remember. It's been two hundred and almost thirty podcasts by now, so it might have slipped through the cracks. But I can honestly say I don't think we've devoted an entire podcast to this. So we're bringing on a guy who's got a lot of experience with it and using it more as a wildlife management tool uh, than than most people. I can even think of. So a lot of great experience here. Kyle, thanks for coming back.
2: Yep. Glad to be on.
1: So Kyle, um, for a lot of you guys, you've, if you've listened to many of the podcasts, you know, he's been on here, but in case you're just joining us, Kyle works with us, um, as kind of, uh, specifically really specializing in upland management, but has all kinds of knowledge in whitetails and turkeys and overall just habitat restoration and habitat management. Um, But on this podcast, we're going to be talking about grazing and specifically using um, cattle grazing, different operations, but also how that can be used for wildlife management. So Kyle, um, give us a kind of a overhead of what this looks like.
2: Yeah, so for a lot of people, um, grazing and wildlife don't don't really go together in people's mind, um, and and that's because what they see across a lot of the landscape. And this isn't a knock on on cattle ranchers or farmers. Don't nobody take offense to this. Um, but as you drive across, especially the Midwest and and going east, um, you see a lot of you know, overgrazed fescue. It's, and it's not terribly wildlife friendly. I think we can all admit to that. Um, so grazing in a lot of people's mind just really doesn't fit with wildlife management, but you know, that's not a function of the cattle's fault and it's not a function of grazing's fault. It, that's a, a function of how those cattle were used and on what kind of forage they were utilized. Um, we can probably all admit that ungrazed fescue also isn't terribly wildlife friendly either. So (laughs) yeah, uh, what we do is what we call conservation grazing. And so there's a real opportunity, especially for, you know, recreational landowners or, or landowners that are in the cattle business and, and need to make a profit, but maybe not looking to just 100 percent maximize every nickel out of every acre right that's right um there there's some there's some opportunity to utilize cattle to actually improve uh, our wildlife populations um and and make some money off the cattle at the same time so even for a recreational landowner i think sometimes they're pretty shocked when we recommend hey you need (laughs) some cattle or let's let the neighbor come in here and graze this and and we're actually going to grow more wildlife with the cattle, and you're going to make a little money off a of wren, or you're going to make a little money off the selling some animals.
1: So. Yeah, it's awesome stuff. But before we really dive into it, let's talk a little bit about turkey hunting. We're kind of, I guess when this podcast releases, it'll be two days after turkey season. So how's your turkey season been?
2: Oh, had a great season this year. Um, went to Kansas. They dropped down to my, my farms in southeast Kansas. It dropped down to one bird uh, instead of two, which is fine. Population's struggling like it is in a lot of the country. Um, Went over there, killed a bird first day, had a great hunt. Um, Our our farm's only 160 acres. Me and a buddy went over and we had eight gobblers on that property. Um, And that goes to show you, we've got some great nesting cover. We do a lot of management, burning timber management, um, running chainsaws we do the edge feather and we do the thinning and we do all the practices you know that that we talk about on this podcast all the time and it shows when you've got opening morning there's eight adult gobblers on 160 acres it's because we've got the hens we got the nesting cover and, and we're going to have the gobblers we got strutting zones i mean we make sure we cover it all so
1: how often do you guys burn it do you burn every year
2: oh at least some portion every year absolutely awesome yep. never never have a hundred percent idle no burn year yeah
1: Um, you you never have a year where it at least something's not burned and you never have a year where the whole place is burned i'll imagine
2: correct that's exactly right yep so buddy killed a bird you know first thing first set up and then i killed a bird oh right at noon got that midday gobble um so so had a great hunt and actually as soon as we got done we were spraying food plots so the (laughs) The management never, never ends. You know, yep. um, we went from within an hour of high fiving and and cleaning the second bird. We're we're on four wheelers spraying food plots, getting ready for for this year. So. <laughs> and then Kansas or uh, Missouri season opened up, and with all this coronavirus, I had some kids not in school, and a couple kids that normally wouldn't be as available to hunt, but all of a sudden were available to hunt every day. So. <laughs> I became a, a became a full time turkey guide for a while, but uh, my two daughters both killed birds, so that was great. And then the middle daughter's boyfriend, he'd only ever killed one turkey in his life. Just got into hunting when he was in college, and got him a bird. So I finally had time to take myself out, and, and uh, I killed a bird as well. So we've the Hedges family has done well this turkey season.
1: That's awesome. Now, speaking of your Kansas farm and kind of, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast, and uh, I think if anybody's a turkey hunter by now, they know that there's a lot of places in the country with populations not doing great. And pre-show, we were talking about that a little bit. 160 acres, eight birds. That's a pretty good density of birds per acre ratio, and I don't think it comes by accident. And actually, we both agree that it's it's not. By chance that there's that many birds there. It's because of all the habitat improvement that's occurred, um, and all the disturbance that you guys are doing, um, and and let's talk a little bit about how that's important and why that should be a, almost a template for other landowners or uh, to encourage other people in the area. Kansas is, like you said, the whole state down to one bird. That was a pretty, I think that was a pretty big statement on where Kansas's turkey population is.
2: Oh, absolutely. There, there's one part, uh, you know, some North central Kansas that you can still get a second. Tag, oh, okay. I, but, I thought but, it was but, statewide, but it is, yeah, for the most part. And there's parts out West, of course, pretty limited uh, timber habitat that you got to <laughs> still draw for one tag, but yeah, but yes, population is down at least 50% overall in the last, you know, five to eight years, I would say. And I, I don't think Missouri is any different than that. Um, seeing a lot of older birds, you know, killing birds with inch and a quarter spurs. And, um, so <clears throat> I, I'm afraid if, if people aren't careful and don't do that management, you know, a lot of people have, have rested on the fact that eh, I don't have winter birds and, you know, the, the winter flock's always, always over there on Joe or whoever, you know, uh, half a mile away, but come spring they split up and I usually have a gobbler or two and that's good enough. I go, go kill me a bird and well guess what we have the winter birds too and we have the spring birds (laughs) (laughs) the people that are doing the management keep hanging on to birds and and some of these folks have already woke up and said wow i used to always have one or two birds in the spring and now they have none and if that hasn't already happened it's going to be happening soon if they don't start you know doing some management i mean the birds any any animal when when populations get light the only occupied habitat is going to be the best of the best. And those marginal habitat acres no longer get used. That's just, doesn't matter if we're talking quail, turkeys, pheasants, anything. Uh, those populations retract back to the to the best habitat around.
1: Anything that requires and quality habitat. <laughs> you bet. Yeah, uh, because I think people might say, well, what about deer? Well, they're a little bit more adaptive than the ones you mentioned
2: so i That's just wanted right. to clarify yeah. that sure there's going to be deer and if there's a, a draw anywhere there'll be at least some deer in it but i yeah. mean there's a 150 inch buck in it though, yeah. <laughs> yeah as we know so yeah. but yeah no any any of those species that you know have some fairly specific habitat requirements they retract back to the to the best habitat and you know let me back up we had eight birds opening morning now i'm not going to say that it you know, every one of those birds spends all day on our property. Oh, yeah. Three, you know how it is. Three of the – on 160 acres, three of those were up in our northeast corner. They were on us. Um, they headed north. They were probably off of us 30 minutes after they hit the ground.
1: Yeah.
2: But those birds also circle back around in midday. They're always up in this piece we call the oak forest. So you know how it goes. I mean, they're coming and going. But yeah. we, we are – the hot spot in probably, you know, two or three sections around there because we have the, the nesting cover. We have burned areas that are good strutting areas. Um, we've got managed timber. We're just doing a lot more than most of the people around us.
1: There's a diversity in plant yep. communities, so you're attracting insects. There's a diversity in vegetation types, yep. but also vegetation heights. Um, So it may be kind of similar vegetation, but one may be two years post-burn, and one may be one year post-burn, and one may be a few weeks Um, post-burn. Yep. Yeah.
2: Well, and really, you know, that's great for us right now. You can sit there and think, oh, man, that's great, and they're sitting in the hot spot. But I don't want us to be the only hot spot because someday— when no one around us has turkeys we're not going to have eight gobblers anymore we're going to be down to three gobblers or two gobblers and that's going to be the only birds around and you know in a square mile or two so in all honesty um you know we need to probably spit something we really haven't done and of course i haven't lived over here for 20 years so it's it's hard to do but i mean to make an effort at some point probably need to start touching base with some of these neighbors and, and yeah. a, a podcast you guys had a while back and, and try to put together, even if it's some, a loose, loosely, um, loosely put together co-op or something where yeah. some of these neighbors hopefully start doing something.
0: Cause, yeah.
2: um, we are, we're kind of the only show in town. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 a lot of pressure. <laughs> You're yeah, the producer, like and and the surrounding yeah. landscapes, the consumer. That's right. Yeah. So, well, it sounds like uh, turkey season was good, but definitely a, a lot more work, and hopefully uh, continue to help uh, expand upon your neighborhood as uh, as an overall better, uh, more impactful management um, to where <laughs> we can hopefully turn this ship around because it's kind of been a little bit scary when you talk to many people um especially people there's always a correlation it seems like uh you know even on my home home farm home turf is the uh population's been declining um we had you know i've got a couple big valleys where we hit got hit with some major flooding really wet springs um and overall just our numbers have gone way down and um, they're starting to come back and and so we didn't really hunt there a whole lot this year we got my dad got a bird but it was like, okay, his buddy, he's uh he's he's safe. <laughs> we gotta leave some for seed, some for the next for the next uh, next year and yep. the next generation. So, you know, it's just yep. uh, always it's always nice to uh, to know that there's some there, but know that you're putting in the work to to greatly improve it. But you know, jumping back over, um, and I think you know, segueing right in from from that comment or that conversation to this is. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to get um, as impactful and make as big of a, uh improvement upon our wildlife populations if we can't find a way to correlate with other um, property uses, uh, specifically cattle grazing or crop production. Um, I think we could all probably agree that when you look at uh, crop farming or cattle farming or recreational activities that we all seem to jump in the 100%, uh, 100% group where this property is devoted 100% to cows or this one's 100% to crops or this one's 100% for recreational where if it's recreational, cows don't go here because they're only competing with my wildlife and I don't want that, so they, they're gone. And then you've got guys who, well, I'm doing cattle and wildlife don't make me any money. Uh, and same thing could be said about crop farming. But I think there's definitely a correlation where, or, or definitely the ability to work together um, to where it's maybe not 100%, but overall, you know, if you're if you're using different activities or doing different things that you could make, you could get way more productiveness out of your farm if you're not trying to get 100% out of one thing, if that makes sense. And, uh, you guys are using grazing as a great opportunity to not only improve wildlife numbers, make, but also make some money for the landowner, um, and overall just add some diversity on the landscape and, and help the wildlife as well as add more grazing acres.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and we need to consider too, you know, a lot of what Land and Legacy stands for and represents is, is managing a holistic ecosystem, right? Um, certainly yeah go out and if a landowner wants to target deer then then can prepare plans that emphasize that or turkeys or quail but we still like to look and you and matt talk about it all the time of of the ecosystem as a whole and and doing what's good for the land i mean to leave a legacy that's the whole point right yeah thus the name of your business um grazing was a historical disturbance i mean we're utilizing grazing in in grassland acres um, open land acres for the most part and not that it can't be used in a savanna setting or something but most of the time we prescribe this is in a grassland setting well that was a historical disturbance just as much as fire was these landscapes were shaped with grazing so the hoof the trampling impact uh, from the hooves the the grazing of the plants allows other plants uh, to be released and I mean, this this is important in the overall evolution of grasslands and open acres, and to me, it's 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 a useful tool, but it's it works because we're mimicking a historical disturbance.
1: Yeah, um, when you see and, the Great Prairies or you see a prairie, you should and and probably when you see the prairie, you can't have to you don't have to imagine far, and you probably picture it burning at some point well you also have to picture it being grazed at some point if you really want to look at it from a, a natural setting absolutely yeah yep and so you guys are doing that with some of your projects utilizing grazing and uh you know i think i think if we're honest a lot of landowners look at it and say you know i i want maximum wildlife numbers um but i really don't want to i don't want to create a pit that i throw my money into and I think there's a negative, there's more of a negative, negative uh, connection between cattle than there is a positive one. And so you're basically trying to bridge that gap and say, listen, these can be used in a much more, these, these cattle can be used to replicate the uh, historical bison herds. And it's going to be much better for the land. And you're going to make some money. I mean, this is, it's, you really have to tweak it and make it correct, uh, and, and implement it correctly. But if done, if, if done correctly, it can be a, a total game changer.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, <clears throat> well, I've been wanting to kind of do this podcast because we've, we've mentioned grazing on podcasts several times and you and Matt have talked about it and, and you and I and Frank and you and I, and, but we've never got into the specifics of You know, whether you got a listener in Alabama or a listener in Michigan or these guys keep talking about grazing, but we've never really got into the specifics of of what we're talking about grazing and what type of grasses and forbs we're talking about grazing and how we graze that. That's all important. In fact, it's hugely important because, again, it's not the cattle. The cattle have never done anything wrong. It's the application of those cattle that has caused sometimes habitat degradation. Um, It's not the cattle's fault. It's if we put too many out there for too long or on the wrong type of grasses, maybe we plant the...
1: Or not enough for too long. I think a A lot lot of times you'll see understocked and overgrazed, which doesn't really make sense, but that's what a lot of the landscape is.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So... Yeah, uh, as I'm kind of excited about this this opportunity to get drilled down more into the details and, and talk about all these differences <clears> of, <throat> of what we're really trying to get at and how we utilize this tool.
1: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the, the common uh, types of grazing.
2: Yeah, so, you know, some people have heard of, of course, continuous grazing. That's, that's probably the most common, which is the cattle are out there. They're out there... That's typically used on fescue, uh, landscapes, which is the majority of grazing acres in the Eastern United States. I mean, we have over 35 million acres of fescue from Kansas East. That's the dominant, um, forage type. That's a non-native. So not even supposed to be here. Um, it serves a purpose. Don't get me wrong. It can be abused and it comes back. It's real tough. So it, it makes it easy. People don't have to. Well, it was a dry year and I had too many cattle. Well, it doesn't matter. It grows back the next year.
1: Yeah, but exactly. There's a lot of
2: a lot of input costs too, though. It takes annual fertilization. I mean, if you really want to maximize, you know, cattle gains on fescue, there's a lot of input costs going into that. But so continuous grazing is is one of the most common ones. People have probably heard of rotational grazing, seasonal grazing so that's where we maybe are we've got them over here for two or three months in the spring move them to a different pasture maybe for the summer different pasture for the fall um patch burn grazing that's what we do and we'll explain a little more about that here in a little bit but where we actually use fire to to make the cattle go where we want um and then there's you know high intensity grazing where people put a million pounds on an acre and they're moving them every day or some places are moving them every two hours i mean super high intensity labor and and grazing effort those are typically not tied to anything we're recommending for wildlife i mean that's that's for high output um you know high high yields high maximization of of cattle gains and typically not the ideal fit for a wildlife management program
1: for sure Uh, and i think that you know mob grazing you could bump that into that last category that you just said Uh, that might be one that people have heard yep Uh, but before we move move on you you mentioned fescue as being a big one let's mention a few of the others that may be popular in different regions uh for the listeners and so you move up north and you're probably going to get into more smooth brome dominated pastures also, once again, a non-native cool season. Um, but once you go south and you go a little west, you're probably going to see it transition from a cool season dominated to a warm season dominated with, uh, like, coastal Bermuda. Uh, yep. Or if you go southeast or, or go east a little more, you may see it be bahia grass. Um, and and even, I guess, down south, you may see pastures at Johnson grass. Um but those are kind of the. Is there? Do you believe I'm missing any? Those are kind of the dominant the, the, ones that I see the, a lot. Yeah.
2: Right. So those are the main forage types, and there's a there's a huge, um, difference here that we need to address. So for one, they're all non-native, so they're not even supposed to be here. Right. Again, yep. they all serve a purpose. Don't get me wrong. I understand why they've showed up. Yep. But in the wildlife management world, all of those smooth brome, bahia grass, Bermuda grass and tall fescue they those are all sod forming grasses which means they grow as like a carpet like a shag carpet and there's no interstitial space between plants and as we start uh, me being a diehard quail guy right or we start thinking about young turkeys or young pheasants or um we're looking for bunch grasses so our native grasses native cool seasons and warm seasons are bunch grasses where they they're like um you know a upside down cone or or an oil funnel so they the they're coming from a base that that maybe is only the size of a a baseball but then they flare out you know as they grow up into something that's the size of a beach ball the top of it is so Underneath that, there's all this space between those clumps that young birds can move around, um, rodents, anything, lots of wildlife can move around. And those spaces also get filled in with some forbs. And we we don't see that diversity in these non-native plants that are sod-forming grasses. So right off the bat, just the, the growth form of these non-natives is not terribly wildlife-friendly, let alone the management that we utilize on
1: them (laughs) yeah yeah so i think that pretty well touches base Mm -hmm. on all the on on all the grass types the dominant ones since we're trying to hit this at 80 grit this is probably going to require multiple (laughs) podcasts to really help people understand but you know this is going to give you a good idea that most of our pastures that you see are non-native um which definitely kind of goes ding 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 that could create a problem for our native wildlife Especially when you start from the, from the, from near the bottom of the food chain and move up, um, not as many insects, not as many. That's not as much food for smaller game or uh, different bird types. Which you just you're throwing a kink in the food chain by hitting it right at the base of. Okay, this does, this isn't as attractive to uh, our native our native uh, species. Right. Yeah. yeah. So
2: so when we're talking about conservation grazing, um, and and we can prescribe some of this on some of these non natives, but we're never going to have near the wildlife effect. So so don't think it's impossible on non natives, but when when we're prescribing it, when we're utilizing it, Frank and I are utilizing it on public lands, or we're prescribing it to landowners. Um, it's on we're wanting to utilize. Warm season native grasses and forbs. So prairie grasses, right? Big blue around here, big blue, little blue, Indian switchgrass, and a variety of forbs. That's where we're prescribing conservation grazing. So grazing it at some levels that are a little more moderate, um, but are are helping us get the effects that we want. And, And along those lines, let me also mention, so there's all different level. This is a complicated issue, and you just alluded to, you know, this may take multiple podcasts, <laughs> but I think yeah. we can touch on the high points. I mean, without getting into bloody, gory details that, you know, it depends on what class of animal you're using. Um, someone can not say, okay, I'm going to add grazing to my operation. I'll just go to the sale barn, buy a handful of animals, and throw them out there, and this is going to work great. And is isn't that simple. Um, you know, steers graze differently than cow-calf pears. Cows have a hardened nose. They've been around a while. An old mama cow, she knows what she likes to eat. She knows what she doesn't like to eat. But her nose is hard. She can stick her nose down in thorny or stuff. Um, a calf hasn't learned yet what to eat. Has to learn from mama. Has a soft nose. Um, steers, they gain more weight faster, so they'll eat. Uh, they'll they'll have a higher intake. So there's just a, a big difference in what ant class of animal the person is going to utilize i would actually prescribe maybe different grazing regimes um are they going to have them year-round if it's a cow calf pair operation they're going to have them there over winter well i got to figure out somewhere to keep these cattle over winter because that place is going to get a little more beat up yep if it's if it's steers like the flint hills of kansas you know that's a seasonal grazing deal well they're going to roll in May 1st, and they're gone by the end of August, and they're going to the feedlot, and then they're going to the slaughterhouse, you know, so completely different operations depending on the classes of animal we're using.
1: Mm. That's interesting. I think, uh, and I think that's too where the, you know, in a perfect world, this is what uh, sometimes you wish we lived in a perfect world, but obviously we don't is that kind of the seasonal grazing is the one that's like, oh, that'd be really nice. We've got all these acres of yep. native prairie. We can send some cows in there, make some money and they're gone in August and it gives our native grasses plenty of time to recover. So we're not losing all of our, you know, our cover. Uh, we're not losing all of our, uh, it, basically when you pull the cows off, it's not lip high grass everywhere. It's still got cover and the grasses are going to recover. Um, that's a perfect world but we don't always live in that perfect world
2: right and so you know and again in our arcade depending on the listener and i know there's a wide variety of listeners but if a lot of them are are keying in because they're they're interested in wildlife they're interested in making their property better for wildlife and they just want to use cattle as a tool most likely you know the best scenario is not going to be go buy your own cattle herd now i know sometimes Land and Legacy has clients that already have cattle herd, and and that's fine. And and we try to figure out the best ways to to manage that and and improve wildlife habitat. But for guys that sometimes are surprised when we throw grazing out there as an idea and they don't have any cattle, you know, like me, I, I live in Missouri, got two different farms in Kansas. I can't manage a cattle herd, but I can rent it. And I can write the contract, (laughs) which is exactly what we do. And I can write in the contract, it's going to be grazed with steers that weigh five to 700 pounds at the time of stocking. You can put this many animals in for this long of a period. I mean, I'll just make up the rules that I want that's going to get me the results that I want. So, you know, it's folks don't, don't shut if you, if you've stayed in the podcast this long, I guess you haven't tuned out already, but um, you know, don't freak out like, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to go buy a cattle herd. That's not what we're saying. Yeah. Uh, most parts of the country, somebody around you probably has some cattle and, and there's an opportunity maybe to say, Hey, I'll let you graze this and for this much an acre. If you do this, 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 and follow the rules, or maybe you don't charge them anything. Um, and Maybe you trade something out or you're just getting the wildlife benefit. Maybe yeah. uh, you let them graze it for free because you've got rank grass that, isn't raising any quail chicks or pheasant chicks or turkey poults. And you need to need the cattle to help you out. So um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. You don't have to own your own cattle. Or...
1: Yeah. And and let's talk a little bit about, because we have this connotation where when we think grazing, we think grass grows up, graze it to ankle high and then move the cows. And it's not like that. that. That's not the ideal world. So talk to me a little bit about your guys' grazing operations that you're helping uh, write management plans for um, and what that, you know, pre-grazing and then through the grazing and then post-grazing. What's that look like?
2: Yeah, so when we're in native grasses with Forbes, um, and we practice patch burn grazing most of the time, it wouldn't have to, but what we'll do is let's say the pasture is a uh, 100 acres, Um we're going to burn a third of that, whether that's in two different units or one big one third unit, doesn't matter. But we're going to burn about a third of that. And, and what results is a thing called pyric herbivory, where animals naturally go to the most recent burn. The vegetation is more palatable. It's more nutritious. And so they know, instincts know to go there. The Native Americans figured this out a long time ago, and they used to burn to attract the herds of, of bison, right? They would burn a new patch, and then they'd move, they'd burn another patch, and they kept trying to, to keep track of uh, attracting the, the bison so that they could hunt them and stock up for the, for the year for meat as best they could, you know. Um, it's been that way. It's just a natural thing, and it works in Africa. It works in the United States. It works in South America. Any place you burn, grazing animals are naturally attracted to it, Uh, whether it's elk, um, cattle, bison, doesn't matter. It works. Um, Elephants, whatever.
1: (laughs) Never thought we'd talk about elephant management here. (laughs) We we utilize
2: that method, and what happens is – The cow herd will spend two-thirds of their time in the unit that we burned. Well, I told you we only burn one-third of it. So that means that that unit gets grazed twice as heavy as everything else. So when we go into, you know, say we're burning typically in March or April. So we go into a May 1st setting, and we're putting cattle out. Well, obviously, we've got a bright green regrowth unit, right, because we burned, or two units, whatever. We burned a third of it, so short vegetation that's just coming back. Um, And we've got a couple other units. We've got a a unit that's one year post-burn, and then we'll have a unit that's two years post-burn. Well, that one year post-burn was the unit that got burned last year that they grazed two thirds of the time, right? I mean, they're not fenced into it. This is their choice. They can graze the whole hundred acres, but they spend two thirds of their time in that one third burn unit. So that tends to really um, hammer the grass, which in the, in the Midwest, thick grass becomes an issue, especially for game bird populations. Um, we get too thick of grass, too much thatch. They can't move around at ground level, can't pick bugs, can't stay dry. They get wet from the dew. And, and it's hard to sustain uh, good recruitment uh, for young birds, ground-nesting birds. So that unit that was grazed hard the year before becomes our really heavy forb unit. It's weedier. Well, guess what? That's got all the bugs. That's going to be the great, brood, perfect brood-rearing unit. But there is still enough residual vegetation Our radio telemetry data from a big quail project we did here in Missouri shows that birds happily nest in, in those units too, a quail for sure. Um, then the, year that's the, or the unit that's two years post-burn, of course, is a little little thicker, a little ranker, um, not as forby, getting a little more grass-dominated. Um, the cattle will just kind of go in there to fill out their rumen, don't spend a lot of time. That's where there'll be a lot of, a lot of nests, um, the front half of the summer. But even the cattle tracking through there will open up some trails that, that quail chicks and turkey poults and prairie chicken young can, can utilize these cattle trails to walk along and pick bugs off either side. So even in a thicker unit, just having cattle trails cutting through it makes a big difference. And then that the burn units from this year, of course, they keep grazing fairly heavy, but our stocking rates are such that they don't keep it, down to a pool table like a fescue field it still gets ahead of them especially in may and june when the growth is really coming on so we saw actual nests showing up by july in our burn units that Mm. that spring burn units we would have quail nesting in them because the vegetation got tall enough to conceal them overhead they didn't need the residual vegetation to make a nest bowl our quail would go ahead and nest in there and i think because all this at that point vegetation is up but of course since we burned it and it's getting grazed it's also pretty heavy with forbs so there's lots of bugs and i think those birds know hey this is going to be great brood rearing if i can just nest right here i won't have to move my brood around when they hatch i can just step out of the nest and we'll start eating
1: Do you have any kind of numbers on the success rate in those you know those july hatchings or 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 basically what kind of success you had in the what the what they what was burned that year and what they nested in?
2: Uh, yeah. So I mean, one,
1: I know you're 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 out of town right now, and so you're gonna have to pull it out out of your head. But you have any idea?
2: I remember one specific year regarding grazed units versus ungrazed units um, at one of my sites, Stony Point Prairie, where sixty two thirds of the nests hatched that were in graze units and only one third of the nests hatched that were in ungrazed units. Yeah. Um, Whether it was the burn or one year post-burn didn't matter. If it was being grazed, we had a much higher hatch rate. Um, And that uh, we attribute to overall just less thatch. We have cattle in there. They're consuming vegetation. We have less thatch. Well, Well, snakes are one of the top nest predators. So if we reduce that thatch, in theory, we've probably reduced the rodent population. Thus, the snakes are probably in the more idle units. Um, we don't have; we weren't able to do any uh, doing snake population estimates is pretty difficult. So we were we looked into that and couldn't do that. But so there's some speculation there. But that's
1: yeah, just and I and I think that's that's fair. I uh, you know we look yeah, sure. we look at what we're doing and and we pull information from all these different researchers across the country and there is you know i i believe there's a lot of really really awesome research out there but i also believe there's some research out there that's funded by blank person whoever whatever company you want to say to where that research may be a little bit biased towards what outcome they're looking for um and so not all research do we say yeah that's that's the that's the truth right there. We ought to take it as a gospel. And so, you know, that there's some stuff where we we hear research and we're like, that makes exactly, that. I mean, that fits right in line with how we see nature working and how we believe nature's natural disturbances were used or naturally occurred on the landscape. That makes perfect sense. And, um, you know, in this instance, it's kind of, a, snakes are a huge topic right now uh, with With declining bird numbers, people are trying to point fingers at everything they can point a finger at. And snakes are catching a lot of that. And it's like, yeah, I mean, (laughs) we all know what happens when a coyote is, somebody finds a coyote that's killed a turkey. It's like, coyotes must die. Well, you can legally hunt and harvest coyotes. Um, Same thing with raccoons. So you're going to trap them or hunt them or do everything in your power to take them off your land because... They shouldn't be there because they're they're taking away what you're wanting to take away. Um, and so with snakes, it's a little bit different because you can't legally do anything about it. Um, and if you're like, I'm going to do everything in my power to make my land the best place for nesting and more game populations, um, and you're sitting there trapping and hunting predators and doing everything you can, well, that's taking a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, and most research is going to tell you that it's only creating a temporary void of predators and it fills back in pretty quickly. But snakes, um, you can't do anything about them legally. And, but here's something that you're telling us based on an opinion uh, on an observation that you found that makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah. A lot of times in research, you know, there's publishable data and then there's some common sense that goes with it and some assumption. Yeah. And we would love as as scientists, as biologists, we would love to base every single move we make off of hundred percent hard data, publishable data. But sometimes that's not the case. We don't have time to wait, you know, 10 years to research. Well, then the research gets done. Well, okay we need to do a few more years on this aspect because it didn't quite tell us everything we raised new questions or, or whatever the case is well if we waited for every single answer to be a publishable data level before we ever made a management decision most of these game populations would be down to gone you know they'd be <laughs> extinct or uh, extirpated so sometimes you got to say hey this this seems to make sense. We're seeing a trend. This is not publishable data. Now most of the quail study stuff is, but this this snake assumption I'm going with, you know that's a, that's an opinion. That's an observation over several years of data. But um, I think it I think it's fairly accurate. And even if we could control snakes, let's think about that for a minute. Okay, what are the snakes mostly eating out there? Now we got a variety. Okay, we got king snakes that are eating other snakes and, and lizards and stuff, I, I get it. But in general, black rat snakes, um, Great Plains rat snakes, or at least in here in the central United States, I mean, that's what's eating a lot of our eggs, right? That's what's eating turkey eggs and quail eggs. Yep. Well, they're also eating rodents, right? Yep. So if we really could figure out a way to go kill all the snakes on our property, the rodent population is going to explode,
1: Right. <laughs> exactly.
2: Well, if the rodent population explodes, we're going to for one, we're going to have a gazillion more hawks around. Well, now that's not necessarily good either, because now they're killing adult quail. Yeah. Um, but the rodents, guess what rodents live off of? Mostly seeds. They're eating the forb seeds. Well, that's what I need to feed quail and pheasant and prairie chickens and sharp tailed grouse and whatever all winter. Uh, if I'm not in an agricultural landscape, if I'm in a grassland landscape, we've got to have forb seeds to get them through the winter when the insects are gone. So it's just, it's such a complex food chain and food web that, you know, if if you start directly removing one animal, it it's just disrupts the whole thing.
1: <laughs> exactly. Thank goodness there's no genies, right? Because if everyone yeah, was yes. granted one wish and they might say, well, I want all coyotes removed or I want all raccoons removed. And then it's like you're throwing huge voids in the food chain, and then everything gets out of balance.
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: Oh, man. So, I mean, based on your observations, you had less snake fatalities or or snake uh, predation on nesting birds, nesting quail in grazed acres. Correct. Yep. And so basically... You know, uh, if we're looking for diversity, and it's not just plant communities, but diversity of of growth, um, you're looking for, I think deer hunters would say, I want the thickest, rankest, buckiest looking units that I can get. Well, those units are not great for, as you're telling me, not great for uh, upland birds, nesting, and especially brood rearing, Um, and then also, they're probably going to be more snakes, so even if even if you wanted them, you're probably not going to have as much success from nest. Um, and yep. then overall, there's probably not much, there's not going to be as much food available because there's not as many forbs.
2: Yep. It's going to be a less diverse stand or monoculture, of switchgrass or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, overall, I mean, we can cite a gazillion examples, but and the word diversity always comes into this podcast, but diversity wins. The folks that want to have rank stands of switchgrass for a big bucks can can keep doing it but i can show you a lot of parts of kansas and, and even western missouri that have over 200 species of plants out in the prairie that um, is not a rank stand of switchgrass that grow you know 150 inch plus deer so <laughs> <laughs> it's whatever we'll just have to uh, agree to disagree with those folks but.
1: yeah so, when well, we're talking about grazing too, so you're doing patch burn grazing on native stands. So, if yep. you're a, uh, if you're, or, or
2: replanted, it okay. doesn't have to be true prairie. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, let me back up. I mean, it can be
1: planted, replanted, Um, you know,
2: na- can... warm season grasses and forbs. Yes. Yep.
1: And I think that's something too for landowners that uh, may be listening that already have cows is. You know, If you're looking at all your acres devoted to cows as being a cool season grass, let's say tall fescue, well, there's an opportunity to where you can take a portion of those acres and plant them into warm season mixes to where not only are you getting better summer grazing, summer grasses, summer pasture, but you're also getting better habitat for the wildlife.
2: Oh, absolutely. So let's think about, and that that's happening to a lot of people, especially these these drought years we've had here in the Midwest. We've had several drought years recently, and where people have all fescue, so that's their that's their only option, and they're grazing year round, but you know they may move pasture to pasture. Um, the typical average daily gain um, June, July, and August. Um, well, no, no, let me take that back average daily gain um from the full grazing season so say march 1 through october on fescue is about one pound a day okay so whether you're a guy that raises your own calves up for a ways and then sells them or you're a backgrounder like my uncle you go to the sale barn and you're buying the 400 pounders and trying to put them up to a thousand pounds before they go to the sale or to the feedlots uh, whatever a pound a day so you're looking for maximum gain if you're trying to make money in this game right um well <clears throat> the warm sea and we've done research on this oklahoma's done it kansas done it and missouri department of conservation has done it and i was involved in, in some of this research um this warm season grass stands with forbes in june july or may yeah, may through august four months we're averaging 2.7 pounds a day of gain, okay? So we're at least two and a half times, two point, you know, seven times better than fescue. And that's year-round fescue gain. Fescue actually is pretty good in, in March and April. And, and even and the in warm the fall. season. Yeah, and in the fall, warm seasons aren't growing in March and April. You know, warm seasons, grasses and forbs uh, a lot of the grasses aren't even growing until the ground tip hits 55. So this summer grazing is what we're doing, 120 days, 150 days, you know, sometime through those summer months. Well, people that are on a fescue regiment, um, there's a thing called the summer slump. And in a drought year, you've seen where the fescue just turns brown. They're not gaining anything. In fact, I've seen people have to feed hay bales in the summer just to get through. So now they're like, dang, I'm sacrificing some of my winter hay because we're in a drought year. And that's happened to us here recently in the last, oh, three or four times in the last six or eight years. Whereas this this warm season stuff that, hey, it's native, gee, crazy idea. It evolved in these horrendous summer temperatures that we have in Kansas and Missouri in July <laughs> and August. Yeah. It keeps growing. It's drought tolerant. So these animals are gaining two or three pounds a day right on through the summer. So that's a serious profit difference. So even if someone is like, hey, I'm full all-in cattle, well, having 30% of that operation in warm season grasses and forbs makes a lot of sense. So you've got some place to move those animals for that midsummer fescue slump. Um, that's why down south, you know, they brought in Bermuda grass and Bahia grass. Those are warm season grasses. So they're utilizing that principle down south, and it and it works out. The problem is those grasses are just not wildlife-friendly. Um, they're really thick at the base, and they just – so it performs for the cattle to some degree, but not at all for wildlife. Well, we can use native species and get the same exact performance, if not better, than Bermuda grass or Bahia grass, and get the wildlife
1: benefit. Mm. Yep. That's and, you know I want to go back to to a previous podcast where I asked you something I asked you a question I said all right if I was if I was to say you could only have one tool you know and I put you in a corner and tie your hands behind your back and say you can either have grazing or fire you chose grazing if it came to managing for wildlife and and managing your farm you still sticking to it Yes yep and and, and, and basically reason. you said because you could manage more acres
2: Right. So in the world of quail, pheasants, prairie chickens, any ground nesting bird. Now let's go back to my 100 acre pasture. I can get, and I have the radio data to prove it. So this really is, this is not an opinion. This is 100% (laughs) data driven. This will be published. Um, I get bird use over the entire 100 acres if it's being grazed. If I use fire, they utilize this year's burn unit. That's where they're going to raise their broods last year's burn unit a little bit uh, mostly just for nesting that two-year old stuff they don't want anything to do with it's too thick they don't even want to nest in it because they know they're going to have to drag their brood you know through that for however many hundred yards to get to the burn unit um, so we found that idle stuff stuff that was more than 12 months since burn got very little use um, in our research so, Yes. Now, what I would prefer is cattle and grazing both. And and okay. some data that just Fire came out. and
1: grazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what did I you say? You said cattle and grazing. Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Fire <laughs> and grazing both. So, um, uh, MU student Emily Sinnott, um just finished her PhD. She piggybacked on our quail project and was doing some brood work and sewing these little bitty backpack transmitters on 14-day-old quail. It was really neat work. Only, only place it's been done is down at Tall Timbers, and then and then here on Southwest Missouri on some of our sites. So really neat work. But her data came out to show the number one best brood survival was burned and grazed. Uh. So I mean, the proof's in the pudding. Um, those are both natural. It just makes so much sense. You see, you hear it and you're like, oh yeah. Those are natural disturbances. Yep, that's the way God wrapped this whole thing up in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> We've just shocker, screwed right? it up so much. <laughs> yep. Uh, anyway, it, oh, that's know, awesome! Shocker that God had it all laid out right, and then somehow we screwed it up and thought we could do better and bring grasses from Africa and South America and all this other stuff in here. Yeah,
1: that that works. We, that probably works really well for those species where they're yeah. native. But yeah, and there's probably people over there bringing in, hey, I got this stuff called Little Blue Stu. it's going to be great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about some of your applications or some of your some of your examples um, that you really were shocked at, I guess. So, um, you know, when you're trying to maximize cattle profits, that can be a little bit negative for wildlife. So you guys are you're trying not only to move that bar of productiveness on the cattle to a point where it's it's great for the cattle, but it's not being detrimental to the wildlife.
2: Right. So we're doing this moderate stocking rates. So let me give you an example. So people, if you're not in the cattle game, or even if you are, sometimes they really don't know what we're talking about. Um, our grazing, our stocking rates, we're putting, and this is for southwest Missouri, mind you, Typically, we're putting a thousand pounds of flesh. So, if we're if they're 500 pounders, that would be two of them, right? A thousand pounds of beef per five acres. Okay, stocking rate typically on a continuous grazing fescue is going to be probably around a thousand pounds per acre, or maybe two acres. Um, not rotational. Rotational grazing might be even a little higher than that. So you also get into nest trampling issues, by the way, if you if you have that many hooves per acre. Um, so we're talking about a 1,000 pounds per five acres. Now you go to, uh, you know, I earlier mentioned that it, it depends on where we're at, uh, what class of animals we're using. Well, guess what? It depends on your rainfall, your soils. If we go to Western Nebraska, the stocking rate is a lot lower. But there's still, we still have... Uh, information and, and stocking rates that are good for prairie chickens, sharp tailed grouse and pheasants and for western Nebraska, western Kansas, we can still utilize grazing as a tool. Texas, sandier soils, different stocking rates. Uh, but for, for us, a thousand pounds per five acres, and we're usually looking at grazing that May, June, July, August, four-month season, about 120, 123 days of grazing. And so the you know the permittees coming in, when we do this on public land, we actually get pretty good competition for this stuff because these guys know, hey, my fescue sucks during that time. So if I can get my cattle on some, some of this stuff, this is great. So we'll we'll take bids, um, and and they'll pay us to come put cattle on our wildlife area. And I don't even, you know, I don't even care. I'm I'm just trying to use the cattle to manage my grass. And Forbes correctly for the benefit of of the wildlife. So the fact that they're paying is just a added bonus. We're not doing it to make money in in you know the state business. But as a landowner, you certainly could utilize that. Um hmm. it, so it's it's again what I would consider a moderate stocking rate. Um you know, at the end of season, you ask, what does it look like at the beginning of season? Well, at the end of season, that burn unit, uh, if it's been a drought summer, that burn unit from this year, it may be, by the end of August, a lot of it may be below knee high, maybe shin high. Um, a wet year, like we've had recently, uh, we have either have a drought or a wet year, it seems like. <laughs> um, some of these wet years, the burn unit still going to be knee high. Yeah. It's just, it's just a lot more open and has a when, lot more. When you take them in.
1: off. So there's still a yeah, little bit when, of growing season left. Yeah. If, yeah. So what's so it we, look like three months later?
2: Yes. Yeah, we still have, you know, we have overwinter use in all of those units, not just the two unburned units. Um, you know, you don't get a ton of growth, but we'll get a little bit more growth in that September timeframe. Um, but yeah, so we might have some of the taller grasses. There'll be a few big blue plants that are, you know, clear up seed heads are chest high, but the majority of those those grasses and forbs are going to be below waist high.
1: Hmm. Um, yeah,
2: but plenty to for deer to bed up in, but also still enough residual cover for for quail, pheasants, prairie chickens, whatever to utilize all winter. And that's what we're looking for. That's what we want out of it. We want this yep. diversity of heights, diversity of density diversity of plant types it's just we're maximizing diversity at every angle and every turn and so some of these units the the two years since burn unit for example will have the highest henslow sparrows number well most people probably don't care about henslow sparrows but that's a, a little bird that's uh, listed as a species. Um, in need of conservation, um, species, species of conservation concern, a sock species. Um, but then our grazed units will have the highest grasshopper sparrow numbers. I mean, our, our burned units for the year that are grazed a little harder. Um, they'll have the highest grasshopper sparrow numbers, also a sock species. So once again, it, it's this diversity. We, we provide a little of something for everyone instead of just all out hey we're going all in for henslow sparrows we're going to make everything they like thicker um thatchier grass stands well that's fine if we do that but then we're selling out on all these other species that need different habitat types so um, we need that diversity that mosaic across the landscape to help maximize as many species as we can besides our target species of quail or pheasants or deer whatever the case may be
1: yeah when you see i've got a couple questions that stirred on from that we know how important woody structure is um for winter cover as well as woody browse for for wildlife uh specifically white-tailed deer where does woody structure come into play in these graze units
2: uh, or actually does it really imp- no uh it is important uh, for for wildlife's sake, for sure, uh, yep. especially ground nesting birds, even even prairie chickens. Now, when we say woody structure, obviously I'm I'm thinking shrubs. I want plum thickets, Me dogwood too. thickets, um,
1: not. We're not talking trees. prairie anyway. We're talking grassland, yeah, so we're not we're talking, talking mighty grasses. oaks. We're talking right. more shrubs. Uh, but and the so, cattle will sh-
2: the cattle will shade in those areas too. Yeah. Now um, you can make the argument you know, if you go to certain parts of Texas, people are going to have more heat tolerant animals. So um, typically around here, we've lost that. Uh, People don't have as heat tolerant animals as as used to be because most animals have some timber to get into somewhere to shade. Um, So they utilize those shrub thickets to shade in, but those ground nesting birds do too. They've got to in the middle of summer when it's 105 heat index, you know, those young prairie chickens got to find a place to, to get out of the sun or the young quail. And, and actually, again, back to the research here in Missouri, um, the closer to shrubs, the higher the survival, the further from shrubs, the lower the survival. So um, that was year round, both winter and summer. So they're wow. very, very important component, both escaping predators, but also escaping the elements, whether it's heat, cold wind, um, they need those shrubs to get into. So, um, and guess what? That's where the big deer bed down too. Yeah.
1: <laughs> big shocker. Yeah. What does the regeneration look like after cattle? So if you've been around cattle much, you know that, you know, if, if it's hot heat of the summer and there's shade available, they spend a lot of time loafing around in the shade. So you're probably going to see a lot of bare ground right up under those, under those shrub thickets. I would assume that you see the same thing, uh, Kyle.
2: Yes, and absolutely So, And that's what I want though Um, Quail, if you look at thickets that have First of all, thickets in true native prairie um, Typically have bare ground underneath them anyway Even without cattle Um, Where you see thickets that have vegetation growing into them It's almost always non-native That's encroaching It'll be fescue or brome or something that shouldn't be there That's a little more shade tolerant That's crowding in These quail, when they go in a thicket or these prairie chickens, they want to be standing on bare dirt. They don't want it to be choked out in this thicket with a bunch of other vegetation. They've got the rest of the prairie for that. Yeah. Um, so we want bare ground in there. And so actually in some of those cases where we do have some of those other non-natives encroaching, it's kind of nice. The cattle lay around in those. And by the time we take them off, it's bare dirt under these thickets. It's perfect. Um, where we don't have grazing and we have issues with some of the grasses growing under our thickets, we actually go out and spray um, before leaf out of those plums or dogwoods. We'll have to spray the understory to kill some of that stuff. So the cattle are saving us time and money by by grazing that non-native out of there and, or smashing it and laying on it and, and helping reduce the, the dominance of it and open those up for us.
1: If you let's say based on your, your burn, your, your patch burn grazing, and you've got shrubs dotted out across the landscape and you've got shrubs on one end of the, of the unit that, uh, are, are further away The the year prior, they were closer to the burn unit, or maybe they were part of the burn unit. Well, a year or two later, they're further away from the burn, the patch that's being burned, um, so the cattle probably aren't loafing in that shade as much. Um, what do you typically see regenerate or grow there? And and I'm, I guess this is a pointed question or a loaded question because there's an answer I'm kind of going. I assume I know what's going to happen because I have a story to share. Um, but I, I'm guessing that you would see because of that soil disturbance, you'd see a lot more of the annuals annual yeah, sure. weeds
2: sure if it gets beat up around a thicket you mean sure yeah. okay yeah yeah you're going to get some of those annuals popping up that's right ragweed which is great around the thicket i don't want it in the thicket but it'll pop up all around it um so that's a great habitat too um absolutely okay um yeah, and, and the reason i asked that is annual sunflowers all of that stuff you bet
1: yeah the the the, the annuals that you wouldn't probably find out in your perennial pastures um, that's right you know we were turkey hunting uh yesterday or two days ago and and uh whatever day it was i shot my last bird for the season and uh it was it was a cool season pasture once again i mean it was it was a fescue dominated cool season pasture but uh in this particular part of of the farmer's farm, cows had been there a lot through the winter um and early spring, so during that wet time of the year where you've got a lot of cows so there's a lot of trampling a lot of hoof action going on. And it was very like, look at this, look at this guys, where you could find where the cows had spent more time. So there was a mm-hmm. lot more, um, you know, it was, it was terrible to walk across cause it was ready to roll ankle, but w- where you could see a cow had stepped or walked around in the mud and mm-hmm. germinating around those, um, tracks was common ragweed. And it yeah. was like, there was a disturbance and now we have an annual trying to cover that soil. Now we have a little bit of diversity because of the disturbance.
2: Yep, you bet. Yeah. Well, uh, Frank and I made a podcast out of our prairie chicken hunt in, in Nebraska. I don't know. I think that one is, is ran. But anyway, yeah, we were looking for the, the zone of the right vegetation height based on um, the grazing uh, level. And it had an increase in forbs, increase in annual weeds. That's where the grasshoppers were. That's where we were finding prairie chickens. So we were keying on those little higher disturbed areas from cattle to find where we ought to be killing prairie chickens (laughs) and it worked out.
1: Oh man. That's awesome. Um, you want to discuss any more of the, uh, kind of the overall benefits of grazing and why that would be something to consider if you are a landowner who's going, you know, I would like to make a little bit more income. I'm in an area where Mm -hmm. I have some open acres, but I haven't utilized those for cattle. Um, are we missing any of our main our main points here that you'd like well, to discuss?
2: Yeah, I want to touch on a couple other things. Uh, just the nature of warm season grasses. I mentioned that that fescue, you know, you can overgraze it, you can beat it up, and it comes back every year. And warm season grass and forbs are not that way. Um, just the fact that if you overgraze them year after year, you'll graze them out, and they're they just won't tolerate it, and it'll turn into you know broom sedge and some other other species, you'll you'll lose those plants. They have to have some amount of recovery period. So if people would put some of this in their operation, their cattle operation, like I said, 30%, maybe 25%, that alone, I don't care if they're using patch burn grazing, continuous gray, whatever grazing method they use, if they grazed it in such a manner that it didn't wipe it out, so that it could sustain itself for 20 years that alone would allow for some wildlife production and wildlife improvements it's just how these plants are made and i, I got a good example uh, frank and and matt and i went and did a consult up at manhattan kansas this guy they had some row crop operate he had several different farms we went and looked at but a couple of them had cattle on them and uh, he was wanting quail and and deer both advice and, and he says, you know, I got whistling quail every spring. I have whistling quail, but I never have them in the wintertime. I just, I want to be able to hunt quail. And we start looking and we're up here in December, right? So now we we've seen post we're there post grazing, right? We we've seen the results of this is when he doesn't have quail. Well, everything there was, you know, below shin high, and there was some fresh snow, so it was perfect to show him like, you have no residual cover. This is, this is being grazed, and it's being grazed in such a manner that you're not wiping out the grass. So it, in, the, in the sense of warm season persisting and the Forbes persisting, the grazing regime was doing that. And it was good for the cattlemen. But he still wasn't reaching his goal, so that's where the give and take comes into play. He was having quail whistle, and we said, here, let me guess. We've never been here in the growing season, but you're talking about quail whistle on your property, which means you've got quail coming here to breed. Yeah, I think so. Well, and we start describing, you know, the vegetation. If you come out here in July, is some of the vegetation, you know, about knee-high? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was almost like we'd been there, right? (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's exactly how it is. Well, the guy was leaving his cattle in until mid-October. And so he's producing quail, but then he's losing them. So he's a producer, but then he's giving them away to his neighbors because the duration of their grazing was such that not allowing any residual cover. So it wasn't too much for the grass and the forbs. They were able to sustain this. They'd been grazing this way for several years uh, and it was still sustaining itself. And he was producing some quail, but he was just missing that last little key component of, you know, you need this little tweak and now you can have quail year round. We can produce them and you can have them for the hunting season. Um, Certainly gonna, you know, that that would cost a little bit of money, gonna lose a little bit of rent if you gotta have that guy bump out of there. So our recommendations were to have the, the grazing tenant bumped those cows out a couple months earlier, uh, but I've no doubt that's all it'll take, and he'll he'll meet his goals. And and though you're not getting a lot of gain out of that by September, October anyway. Yeah. Um, so really, for the for the cattleman, uh, I don't think it's going to be that big a deal in the long run, even. Mm. Man, oh I think man. there's just some neat stuff we can do with with grazing animals and habitat and. A lot of it's scary to a lot of people that, that aren't involved, or a lot of people just rent their land to a, a cattleman, right? And yep. it's just however he wants to graze it. Yeah. And that that's kind of the standard deal across the Midwest. If someone rents their land for grazing for $15 an acre or whatever the going rent is, $20 an acre, there's usually no stipulations, no grazing plan no contra it's just yep you can graze it so if that guy wants to graze it in the winter or the summer or year round that's his choice because he's renting my grazing acres well it doesn't have to be that way yeah um we can lay out we can help people lay out, you know, some pretty specific things that will really make a big difference.
1: Yeah. So, I guess that's a shout out right there guys if if you're a landowner in this situation where you would like the ability to make some income, you've got some open acres, you are in cattle country, shoot us an email at TV and Colin and Frank with a lots of experience on this can help you lay out a grazing pattern or a grazing plan for your place and uh bounce around ideas to hopefully find a way to help you meet your goals and and make a better impact on your wildlife numbers and and uh, improve your land for for generations to come. Closing thoughts? Yeah. Nope, that was a good
2: good conversation.
1: Yeah, man. I I enjoyed it, you know. Um we were asked on a podcast, oh gosh, a, a long time ago, probably over a year, describe our our uh, ideal farm. And I think the guy was floored when I said, I definitely have cows. It was kind of like, what? Why would you do such a thing? I said, "A well, perfect world. I was like, yeah, that is a perfect world to me. Um, and uh, I, hopefully there's more and more people considering doing it and, and trying to use cattle as, uh, as a great way to uh, cre- create some disturbance on their farm.
2: You bet i think that's a a missed opportunity across a lot of the landscape and then unfortunately it's an overused opportunity on much of the landscape (laughs) so we need some middle ground we don't have much of that we've got a lot of ungrazed acres and a whole lot of overgrazed acres and not very much medium grazed acres
1: yep yep so awesome man well thanks for joining us once again um guys thanks for listening and uh Man, um, so many great things, so many projects firing back up, turkey season winding down for a lot of you guys. And so uh, we'll be kicking it strong with a lot of habitat habitat improvement projects in the future. Yep.